Welcome back to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies, and more importantly, hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. And a special welcome to our new listeners. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bro, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, in the United States, the Congressional Select Committee has begun its work investigating the January 6th storming of the Capitol. And police and prosecutors are continuing their work too. As we speak, the police has arrested no fewer than 535 of the rioters and is still trying to identify 300 others, including 200 who attacked police officers. 165 of the defendants have, for example, been charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers. More than 50 of them have been charged with using a deadly or dangerous weapon or causing serious injury to an officer. As we record this, the first rioter to be convicted of a felony has been sentenced. He was given an eight-month prison sentence. And the U.S. Department of Justice calls January 6 its most complex investigation ever. And all of this was caused by misinformation and disinformation spread primarily on social media, which caused many people to think that grand-scale election fraud had taken place and decided to act on that information. And we all, of course, know what they decided to do. They decided to storm the Capitol to prevent Congress from ratifying that election result. Worldwide, disinformation and misinformation regarding COVID vaccines have caused people to refuse to be vaccinated. This has caused President Biden to say the other day that Facebook is killing people. This all illustrates a fundamental reality that has been true since the dawn of man, but which we had forgotten about. Disinformation is not a nuisance. It has consequences. It has consequences in real life. NATO's Strategic Communication Center of Excellence in Riga focuses on exactly these issues, how disinformation and misinformation work, which tools they use, and how they weaken our societies. And the center also looks at what sort of techniques are emerging. That makes its director, Janis Sars, the perfect person to ask about regarding the current situation and regarding what we can expect to see in the future. Yannis has spent a long career in national security, including 11 years as State Secretary of Latvia's Ministry of Defense. Among other things, he has also served as the chair of Latvia's National Cybersecurity Board. And for the past six years, he has been the director of the Stratcom CUE, which does invaluable work for NATO members and for the wider international community in investigating this information. Now, Janis, welcome. And sorry to welcome you with such bad news, but that makes your work all the more necessary. So welcome. Thank you. Although I have to admit, I'd rather be in a situation where our work is not really that urgent or that important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, Janis, but you will be around and the center will be around for a long time because the issue is not about to go away, on the contrary. And I, I want to ask you, everyone has at some point shared a social media post before verifying its content. So when did the lazy spreading of partially inaccurate content go from being just a matter of laziness and maybe hygiene, social media hygiene, to a matter that could lead to the storming of the US Congress? Where did this take such a dark turn? Well, I don't think there is a kind of scientific data to have an exact date, but I would argue probably some three to four years ago that turn has been made. 
And I think there are two elements. First is the weakening of traditional media models. That has been happening for a while now. And second is basically moving that debate space onto the social media, not only the kind of fun parts where it started, connecting to classmates and, and, and et cetera, you know, seeing funny videos, but actually the public debate moving on to this online environment. And I think since then, because of the also the way social media companies run the business, and that is trying to keep the people as much as possible on the platform through engagement. And of course, most of that engagement happens when, when you show people what they want to see. And that's where human brain kicks in and we want to see the world according to us. And increasingly, mm-hmm. we, we don't recognize the world in other colors, in other opinions. And if you happen to be in a kind of bubble that says that the earth is flat, you, you will eventually start to believe that. And that would lead to the way you behave. And I think it has happened now for, for kind of three, four years. That's, that I would say was a turning point and has uh, been worse since. So I think pandemic in particular has shown how, how fragmented society has become because of that and how very different viewpoints, perceptions of a reality and therefore behaviors happen. And some of them are absolutely scientifically or real world unattached perceptions. And when people act upon them, that puts them directly in harm's way. Absolutely. And it's obviously not about to end. It's, it's accelerating because new tools are becoming available and they can be put to good use, but they can also be put to distinctly sinister use. And AI is obviously such a tool and deep fakes are already making the rounds. And, and we record this as a new documentary has just been released of, of a famous American celebrity chef who committed suicide a few years ago. And his voice is uh, in that documentary, but as, uh, well, AI generated because he's obviously dead. So that raises the question, what can we see? What can we as average citizens of liberal democracies expect to see in our content feeds and, and in, in, in the wider discourse over the next couple of years? Well, there, there are a number of things. First and foremost, of, of course, you've said about the deep fakes. The paradox is most of the experts said deep fakes is going to be the next big thing. But in fact, we haven't seen really the deep fake have such an effect. But instead, we have seen a lot of cheap fakes. So to say a readily available, easy to use solutions to fake photo, video, kind of uh, uh, adjust the photo or video. And it's been interesting that these have been far more popular and used than the, the real deep fake that is hard or uh, impossible for a human eye to distinguish. And that is because actually a very sad conclusion, at least from my part, is because it doesn't take a deep fake to, to fool us. It's enough to have a cheap fake. If we have already predisposition, we're going to fall for cheap fake. Why should you invest in a very resource uh, required uh, deep fake? That, that is a very important point. We, uh, and I, th- I think it, it connects to what you said earlier, we fall for what we want to fall for. And if it's a cheap fake, why should anyone uh, invest in a more sophisticated uh, deep fake? 
But of course, at some point we'll have it when that will be part of a bigger campaign to have a specific effects on, on people or policies or elections. But at, at this point, it's, I think, interesting to conclude that people have been concluding on the other side of a fence that cheap is good enough. But second element that I think is going to be much more used in the future, which is already to a certain extent right now, and that is the micro-targeting based on the data about the person. And one of the key things to influence uh, people's behaviors, like at will, is to know what that human thinks, what is uh, that human's uh, motivational patterns, what are the relationships, what makes that person tick. And once you have it, then it's very easy, in fact, to manipulate people's choices, behaviors, and et cetera, et cetera. And that is the technique that has been increasingly on growth. Big data collection of individual data, like especially people in the United States, are very unprotected. Basically, no one in the United States has privacy. I would basically say that. In Europe, a little bit more so because of a GDPR, and a little bit more so because of the smaller languages that doesn't present such a market. But when we look at the United States, you can buy anybody's data, basically. And of course, based on that, if you are very well kind of resourced organization, you can train AI based on that data to understand the human very well, predict the behaviors, and also understand how to best influence in one or another fashion to a micro level. And that's instead of where kind of the fake news about things uh, or, or vaccines go in generic ways or through Facebook groups that are already self-affiliated with a particular point of view, that would be more proactive way to disseminate disinformation for a behavior change. And that is something that we start see. It has been used already, probably not as effective as some might have claimed, but I, I'm absolutely sure it's going to be more effective. And last thing that is, I think, the big question also for me, once the 5G comes in and the Internet of Things makes its hold on the kind of reality, will start increasingly have the ability to marry the physical and digital worlds. So they will be starting to overlap. And that, I think, will create a new wave of how disinformation and misinformation is going to travel and how it will kind of get into our brain. And I think at this point, it is very hard to predict all these elements like it was very hard to predict that social media is going to be such a hotbed for disinformation 10 years ago. But I think there's, there are going to be profound effects. For once, it's good to come from a smaller country that uses a smaller language. So you and I are both better off than many others, Yanis. But it is a disturbing trend, as you say, that there really is no, in the United States, there is no privacy. In Europe, there is a bit privacy, but not a great deal. And uh, this raises really fundamental questions about the stability or the, the resilience, I should say, of our democracies. Uh, because if, if the information we receive, if it's not even uh, feasible for us to try to detect this information, how can we possibly make an informed decision about the, the candidates standing for office, for example, or about the decisions they make? 
Well, you're exactly right, Elizabeth. We have to find the ways how to adapt the liberal democracy to these existing realities. I'm not saying that democracy uh, is not compatible with a technology. I think it is, or that technology is bad in, in its own right. It's about people, how they use technologies. And unfortunately, the, let's say, good guys and girls in democracy have not really thought through as much as the bad guys how to use that for, for good things as much as the bad guys have been thinking about how to use it for the bad things. And, and here, I think we're, we're really, from a kind of technology perspective, approaching some really fundamental questions. For instance, we've, we've built a democracy on the presumption that humans have a free will. We have a privacy, we have a kind of boundaries between the state and, uh, and the private person and, and everything is kind of put into the legal context, how much state can or cannot do. Right now, I find actually that most of the companies do know much better than the humans uh, within a country than the state uh, has ever known. And it's absolutely unregulated. So part of a problem for the, the privacy, the, and it is all for sale. Second element is that this data AI relationship can at some point increasingly lead to the point where the ability to manipulate the individual is to a scale where we can start questioning the assumption that we have still a free, free will. And some of our experimentation I've been talking about is kind of points in that direction that the risks are not really that far away and they're very, very substantive where you can manipulate through these techniques people into doing something that is utterly counterproductive to them. And lastly, there are no boundaries. And when we look, for instance, at the same China social scoring system, which uh, is, as we recently done and uh, kind of finished the piece on that, is, is at the same time not as sinister as it looks from outside, but on the other side, actually is very bad attempt to control human behavior in a sense that whoever be, wants to become part of China's economy, like companies, would inevitably have to be part of that. And that would start creep back into our systems, like the case in, if I remember back a half year ago in Vancouver, when one restaurant chain was running that social credit system in Vancouver for people in Canada. So it's, it's the many questions that we have to rethink the way we do our liberal democracy and some fundamental things can be kind of altered. And my worry obviously is that we've been late for, for these changes all the time and, and the kind of uh, window of, of not having a, in place a regulatory or other kind of agreement is, is just growing. And that's uh, what worries me. Very worrisome indeed. Can you just tell us quickly, Janis, who the bad guys are? <laughs> well, they're, they're in, many, in, many in the sentence or two. Of course, from NATO and NATO Center of Excellence perspective, Russia are, and they are actually globally the most active bad actor state-wise. There are other actors. Iran is there, but not as sophisticated as Russia, not as good networks as Russia. China is getting up. They're starting to use more of, the, more of those information-related techniques, but they're probably not as strong in areas further away from China. But they're technologically kind of more 
heavy weights than Russia are, then, you know, North Korea, etc. But then there are actors for hire. There's, there's a kind of huge number of actors that are ready to do this disinformation campaign for, for money. Philippines, uh, very well-known space, all of the bot network market basically is controlled by Russia, um, Latin America, Venezuela, Mexico, Mexico, very, very strong players in the disinformation environment, not as a countries, but as a groups of players for profit mostly. And of course, within our own countries, like within liberal democracies, uh, players that deliberately use disinformation to, to have the effects. Some of them do that for uh, profit. And some of them do that for influence. And when I talk about disinformation, I distinguish because, well, people have right to, to, be, to, to be the misinformation actors because they believe so. Well, that's freedom. But disinformation is where you do that to, you organize a number of networks to create an effect that you desire, which is not an opinion. That's a deliberate action, and there are ways to, to distinguish between those. But of course, we have to always remember people have right to believe misinformation. That's how we've been, you know, throughout human human history. That's right. And and if we only had one allowed opinion at the time, we would be in a very dark place. But that raises the question of what we can do about this absolute anarchy. And it seems to me that one thing that needs to happen is education of, of citizens here in, in our liberal democracies, because we are so we are just not educated about it because nobody is in charge of educating us. And it occurred to me that what would happen if, for example, local libraries had information literacy courses and you got a, a certificate upon graduating, which you could use on, on your resume, and, and it would give you, obviously, the, the, the satisfaction of knowing that you are a, a, a citizen trained in information literacy. So that sort of resilience is one step. What do you think of that? Well, education is a must. But to think that education is going to solve it, no, not at all. Many of our experiments show that, and of course we work in the kind of military environment, so we, we test things on uh, with soldiers. Uh, very well-educated soldier can always fall. And for disinformation, if it's crafted understanding the way the individual thinks. So it's going to be, it is already pretty tricky even for educated people, but it is going even more to be even more difficult. The second uh, kind of, I would say, second problem we have is we already have lived in this environment for a pretty long time. And I've seen in some of the cases related to pandemics, the questionnaires about the school teachers and what they believe in terms of, you know, what the virus is and et cetera, et cetera. And what I found disturbing in, in, in these cases is that such a great number of teachers actually have themselves fallen for uh, disinformation kind of beliefs. And that is just showing me that you can't even, as is, right away rely on a full education system because it is already also being kind of shaped by this disinformation environment. But, but still, yes, education is a must, but it's not as easy and it's not by far not the only one. 
One thing that really has to happen, we have to start looking back at the kind of those that shaped this information space, which is social media companies. And we've always been complacent. Okay, these are mostly American, but by and large, democracy-owned companies. And still, we've been not really very good at, you know, pressing them to do the right things. And I think by now, we already have some clarity what should be done. But increasingly, China is starting to come in and they're increasingly taking over the space. So not only we have the problem with kind of not companies investing and doing as much as possible, but also this kind of global idea competition where, you know, we know when, once the data is the data of the Chinese company, there's nothing that prevents that data become the Chinese government's uh, data. So there are added risks if we don't act quickly. So that is something really, really important. And last element, I would also argue that for the future technologies, like, as I've said, uh, big data-based micro-targeting based on AI, I think we have to come up with a rule set there as well. It, we, we should be clear what is allowed, what's not. And secondly, we have to have systems to detect when somebody does that against populations, because most of the time it is very hard to tell who is the de facto actor behind these kind of things, because it's easy to hide, not to mention the kind of future technologies that would be shaping this environment. Thank you for bringing up the social media companies. It, it seems to me that, that now for years we have heard them say that, uh, yes, they are doing everything they can. They have so, so many thousand employees looking at suspected fake accounts every day. But if, if they're doing everything they can and we still have this problem, that suggests that, that, that them doing it on a voluntary basis is not enough, which brings me to the question, do we need some sort of united legislation involving all liberal democracies? Yes, we, there is no organization that could force that to happen. But if, well, if these countries were to act together uh, because it's in everybody's interest to, to curb this problem somehow. Well... Obviously, we need that. And, and, and clearly, kind of to, to add weight to this need is democracy is based on the ability to debate within the society and the health of that debate. And this debate for some time now has de facto moved to the social media companies, to online and mostly to the social media companies. So it's not more the debate in the spaces where you used to have like town halls, media debates, and et cetera. It's not really anymore the place where it happens. Now it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube channels. That's where the public debate happens. So the way the house of that debate and, and, and argument in this space is, that is the house of our democracy. And if that space is run by the algorithm that is meant to make dollar, or Euro, then we shouldn't be surprised that the health of our democracy has gone down. Because, well, you know, we as humans, we fall for emotional, instinctive arguments. We, we are like that. And, 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 you know, for algorithm, you want to make money, you prey on these instincts, you prey on those emotions. And they are divisive. If you put something divisive, well, it has far bigger likelihood to go viral than anything that is rational. So, that's why it's absolutely must for the health of democracy to regulate it 
but not in a way that, you know, Facebook has to sell what's right or wrong, or Facebook has to uh, decide who has the right to say something or not. We have to first add transparency to the process. First thing about the companies like Facebook or Google is you just have to believe what they say. There's no way to back check on what they're saying. We as a center have come up with some other solutions now to check on their ability to deal with the bot systems and et cetera, et cetera. But that's because we, we thought, you know, out of box, but there are no normal mechanisms. I would argue also we have to look into the way algorithms have been programmed and we have to have the rules, what should go viral and, and et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, once, as, once again, I've said that disinformation is rarely a one piece act. Disinformation requires a network of things to work in the same direction. And that is where you can kind of from a you know, democracy perspective, be sure this is not a personal opinion. This is not a freedom that you're kind of curtailing. It's somebody working in an orchestrated manner, manipulating different elements to make an effect. And that is something, at least from a at least European approach to democracy perspective, I think is, is going too far. And that's where the action has to be taken. And even and if we do these acts. I think it would be already much better. And none of that would really touch on the freedoms of speech and et cetera, in my view. So in essence, what, what you're suggesting is, is disrupting the disinformation supply chain by intervening at just at certain points, but not by immobilizing the, the companies or, or making them uh, do the, the government's bidding, which would obviously be completely counter to, to what we are about as liberal democracies, but just disrupting one chain of that process and we would already be in a much better place. And on top of that, the transparency, like one of the key principles of, of democracy, wherever there is a power, there has to be a transparency for the society to see in. And it strikes me that a lot of power from a democratic process perspective has gone to these companies, but there's no transparency whatsoever from the society perspective. And, and that's absolutely a kind of, it's, it's wrong. You have to have. It, it, it absolutely is. And if you think about traditional CNI, so critical national infrastructure, water, sanitation, uh, power, and so forth, it's all regulated by the government and run often by private operators, but regulated by the government simply because these are vital services to society. The companies can't operate as they wish without any sort of insight or oversight by the government. And I wonder if the same thing will become inevitable for social media companies. Well, I would actually argue that uh, social media companies are actually more important for national kind of democracy process, from national security perspective, because, well, for water, there, there is water or there's no water or there's a kind of uh, not a clean water. But from an information perspective, you can't, you know, do this binary. You have to be very, very nuanced because that, if you do it the wrong way, it, it disrupts the very nature of the democracy. Just say, okay, we don't like A, B, and C, and therefore you as a kind of company have to take it down. Well, that's a very, very dangerous route because you have to organize that space in a way where freedoms are respected, but malign acts for 
you know, subversively influencing others should be restricted. And that's what we're after. And it is also from a technology perspective, it's far more difficult than secure even the, the power grid because yeah, cyber is a dif different and difficult area, but it's uh, but much more straightforward. Is information more important than water or more important than power? An important question, a vital question raised there by Janis Saats, a director of NATO's Stratcom COE, so Center of Excellence for Strategic Communications in Riga. Janis, thank you so much. Thank you. As always, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify and give us a good rating too if you're so inclined. And many thanks to our producers Olivia Leslie and Leila Hernande. We'll be back very soon with another episode, another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cast.